Well, good morning everyone again. It's certainly great to see you all here, even though we're not a lot. As we come to the next psalm in our series, Psalm 6, we get to an important topic, which is discipline. There is a famous quote which states that discipline is rarely enjoyable, but it's almost always profitable. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines discipline as a form of punishment or training which seeks to correct, mold, or perfect the mental faculties or moral character. It's quite interesting that when you Google discipline, most of the quotes, books, videos that come up are all related to self-discipline. We live in a culture that really elevates the individual You know, getting up on time, making your bed, training, eating well, all of that's related to self-discipline. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a best-selling book on the value of disciplining others, especially children. So how are we to understand the discipline of God within a culture that no longer has any language or understanding to make sense of this? Well, David provides us with the language and insight to do so in Psalm 6, which we'll be looking at today. The title of today's sermon is The Discipline of a Faithful Father. The Discipline of a Faithful Father. And we'll be looking at this in four points. Our first point this morning is the silent discipline of the Lord. The silent discipline of the Lord. So follow with me in your Bibles as we jump into the first verse. When we look at the first verse, we, we don't immediately see a specific confession of sin. David doesn't tell us that he's being disciplined for a specific sin, yet we know David wasn't sinless. This could be during any period of his life. It could be after his sin with Bathsheba. It could be after killing Bathsheba's husband. But the evidence of God's discipline in this psalm is quite clear. We see David telling us that the Lord is angry with him, that he's experiencing the Lord's wrath. And it's quite interesting when you look at the first two verses, there's a sort of parallelism where you do not rebuke me and don't discipline me sort of go together and your anger and your wrath goes together. So these are the two main thoughts in this passage. We see two attributes highlighted, God's anger and his wrath, which is interesting since many of us don't view God in that way. But we also see a way in which he deals with his people, rebuke in verse 1, and discipline in verse 2. Now this is something which we don't really speak about that much in our modern culture. Many times when we speak about God, we speak about God's love and God's grace. And these things are certainly important and certainly part of who God is. Yet many times we don't speak about God's anger and God's wrath. It's very taboo actually to speak of God's anger and wrath. And even more taboo speaking of God's discipline. I mean, we're living in a culture here in Norway where it's illegal for parents to discipline their children in almost any meaningful way. So why would we think that God would discipline his children when we don't even speak of us or parents as disciplining their own kids? And I think this is probably my personal biggest problem with this. It's not necessarily that I think children should receive discipline. But that how will our children make sense of God's discipline when they've never been disciplined throughout their lives? 
Children will see God's discipline as divine abuse. If they're being told by culture and by their friends that their parents giving them a stern talking to or giving them a time out or any sort of discipline is abuse, how will they make sense when God actually disciplines them for their sin? How will they see that as a good thing? Yet we see in the first verse that David sees God's discipline as something which he has to come to grips with, something he has to wrestle with. Now, when we look at the ancient world, especially the Jewish understanding of sickness and illness, which is probably what David had because he asked the Lord to heal him, so we can assume that David was probably afflicted with some sort of sickness, some sort of disease. The Jews viewed sickness as punishment for sin almost every single time. This is why the Pharisees in John 9, when they came to Jesus and asked him, what did this man do? Why is he sinning? You know, why is he sick? It must be a sin. They saw sickness as a form of punishment. They saw any sort of disease as a form of punishment for sin every single time. Now, I'm not saying that is the case, that when you're sick, it's a sort of discipline. But we do find, as we read this morning in Hebrews 12, that we have to endure hardship as discipline for it is as if God is treating us as His children. It tells us in verse 7 of Hebrews 12, For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not a true son or daughter at all. So we see that God disciplines His children. When we sin, God disciplines us to bring us back on track. If you have never endured hardship or suffering or discipline from the Lord, Hebrews tells us that you have to ask yourself, am I a legitimate child of God? Since if, you've, if you're not disciplined by God, you're not a legitimate child. You're not a true son or daughter. So when we receive the Lord's discipline, this should actually be a good thing. This is like a stamp on us that tells us, I'm a child of God. The Lord is disciplining me because He loves me. It's dangerous to tell people that there must be some unrepentant sin in their lives which leads to suffering. But it's equally dangerous to tell people that their suffering is not God's will at all. God is completely removed from suffering because then it would, they would miss the fact that God uses that to bring us back to Him. So as we move to verse 2, we move away from God's anger and God's wrath to God's grace and mercy. David says to the Lord, after he just said to the Lord, you're angry, you rebuke me. It says, be gracious and heal me. I'm weak. My bones are shaking. So even though David is experiencing the wrath and anger of God, he's nonetheless standing on the fact that God is gracious. God is merciful and therefore God can and will heal him. So here we see that David using the word heal me. And in the Hebrew, this actually refers to a plant that's withering away. Like a plant when in the sun like today and you don't give it enough water, plants wither away. That's what David is saying. David is saying, I'm withering. I'm on the brink of destruction. I'm on the brink of death. Like a plant who cannot water itself, David needs the Lord to do what he cannot do for himself. Just like a plant cannot heal and water itself, David realizes that the healing he needs he cannot do for himself. 
It's an interesting phrase that David follows that up with. He's saying that my bones are shaking. In English, we don't really understand that all that well because we rarely speak of our bones shaking. But what David is trying to tell us here is that he's in terrifying agony, that his bones, his inner being is in complete and total agony. He's terrified to his very core. Fear has taken root of David's core, of David's bones. His bones are shaking. They're in terror. And verse 3 intensifies David's experience of terror. When he cries in absolute brokenness, my soul is also greatly troubled. My whole being is shaken with terror. And you, how Lord, how long? So not only is David's bones, his very core, shaken and terrified, his soul is terrified. David is seeing not only his body failing, but also his soul, or that which God provides, the inner man falling away as a result of the Lord's discipline. He ends up crying to the Lord saying, How long? This is an anguished cry. It's almost an accusation that David makes to the Lord. It's like, but you, O Lord, how long? How long will you not answer me? How long will you delay in saving and delivering me? Here we see David being weak and terrified. And what makes this so frustrating is that the Lord seems to be silent. The Lord seems to be completely absent in David's suffering. For many of us, that's the case. How many times have we prayed and it's like as if God is not answering? It's as if God has turned His face from us. How many of us have prayed during the night when we're struggling to sleep? Or prayed during the day when we're terrified of things plaguing our family and it's as if God is not there? We see this in the New Testament as well. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul prays and he asks the Lord to heal him. He says that there's a messenger from Satan tormenting him. Paul tells us that three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. And the Lord refused. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul continues, therefore I will boast about my weakness so that the Christ's power may rest on me. So here we see Paul praying three times that the Lord would heal him. And the Lord doesn't heal him. And so we might be sitting here like, but the Lord wasn't completely silent. The Lord told Paul why he's being afflicted. The Lord told Paul it's because of Pride, you, you shouldn't be prideful, it's to keep you from being conceited. Yet we know with David, the Lord wasn't completely silent either. David knew that he was being disciplined. David knew that this suffering was as a result of discipline. And this is what we mean when we speak of divine silence. It's when the Lord is acting in a way that's contrary to what we pray for. When we pray for something and the Lord's answer is no. I will not heal. I will not deliver. You not being healed, you not being delivered is better for you. So what would be the natural response to this? Well, most people would reject God at this point, throw a mini tantrum, since the sky genie isn't answering my every wish, I need to reject him now because he's not answering my prayers. 
How often do we see this in this world, divine absence as a reason for many people calling themselves Christians? I think in our age today, that's probably one of the biggest reasons people are, are atheists. People look at their lives and they maybe pray one or two sentences or they go to church one time and then God doesn't act the way they want him to and then they reject God. Yet what does David do? Look with me in verse 4. After asking how long, Lord, after saying how long, Lord, will you delay? We see David leaning into his pleas. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me. These three questions, these three imperatives gives us our second point today. Our second point being asking the Lord to save his worshippers. Asking the Lord to save his worshippers. So in verse 4 we find an interesting word. We see David telling the Lord to turn. Now this is a word usually used by the prophets when they ask people to repent. In the wisdom literature we also find to turn from evil, to turn away from unrighteousness. Now this is usually something connected with humans. Humans are called to repent and to change direction, to turn from their sins and to turn to God. Yet the Old Testament tells us that God himself changes his mind and, or repents. Now it's important for us when we read this to notice that on an eternal level, God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't repent. Numbers tells us that God doesn't lie or repent. Biggest reason for this is God doesn't gain access to new information. Because God knows everything, He cannot change His mind. Since changing your mind would mean that you learn something that you didn't know, realize that you were wrong about something, and then believing something else. But from our perspective, God changes. God changes His mind in the way that He deals with us. So an example of this, just to make it easy to understand, is God deals with us in real time. So this means that when we sin today, God doesn't act towards us like we were painting in two weeks' time. So God knows we would repent in two weeks' time. He doesn't respond to our sin knowing that we would repent. Similarly, when we're worshipping God today, He doesn't look forward and say, Oh, but Thomas is going to sin in two weeks' time. I'm not receiving Thomas's prayers today because he's going to sin. No, God deals with us in real time, even though he's outside of time. So today, if we're walking in obedience and fellowship with God, God doesn't act or choose to act towards us knowing what will come in the future. So in this moment that David is speaking, he's being disciplined as a result of his sin. And he's asking for the Lord to turn from the Lord's discipline and be gracious to him. He also asks the Lord to deliver his life. This sense of the Hebrew here is to withdraw or to tear out. It's almost like tearing out weeds or tearing out bricks like we see in um, Leviticus. Taking out bricks from a wall. So what David is asking is the Lord to both heal him and turn away from the way he's doing things. But to tear him out and snatch him out of the circumstances that he's currently facing. So now we should come to the question, which is, why does David think he can come to the Lord in this way? Why does David think that in the midst of being rebuked by God, in the midst of God's anger, in the midst of his sin, who's David to tell the Lord to turn? Who's David to tell the Lord to be gracious and snatch him out of these circumstances? 
Well, David tells us, it's because of your unfailing love. David grounds his request for God's deliverance based on the fact that God is merciful in nature. He's basing it again on this word that we find on his hesed or his covenantal love. Because of God's covenant faithfulness to his people, David can look to God and ask God to deliver him. Because of God's faithfulness to David, David can trust that God would act in a faithful way to him. And this is how we should approach God as well. Yes, we should approach God with our hopes and our desires, just like David. David's hopes and desires, heal me, deliver me, take me out of this situation. Yet our prayers should be based on who God is. In 2 Corinthians 1, we find a prayer by Paul, which reads, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be, comfort, be able to comfort those who are in affliction, with the comfort with which we are ourselves comforted by God. So Paul's praying for comfort here. But why? How can he pray for comfort? Well, Paul knows the character of God, Father of mercies, God of all comfort. This is what we find in the psalm as well. Because David knows God as a faithful God, he can trust God to be faithful. Just like Paul knows God to be a God of mercy, a God of comfort, he can pray and trust for the comfort of God. Do you know God? Do you know the character and nature of God? Because if, if we don't, if we don't know God and His nature and His character, how can we ask the things of Him and be assured that He can actually do those things? If you don't know God as the one who saves, how can you pray for somebody's salvation? If you haven't experienced the love of God, how can you pray for God's love in times of suffering? This is why it's so important for us to know God, to study God's word and get to know him for who he is so that we can stand on God's character and trust him when we pray. So look at verse 5. I find verse 5 quite interesting. It's almost as if David is using some sort of bargain, bargaining technique with God to motivate God's action. David tells God that if God continues to forget the faithful, there will be no one left to praise him. So David is basically saying to God, Lord, if you don't deliver me and deliver the faithful, well, nobody's going to be able to praise you anymore. And if we understand the Hebrew understanding of death, they didn't really have hope for resurrection. Most Jews didn't really have this view of a, a resurrected body. So when you were dead, your body, soul, you would have some sort of gray, shadowy existence in Sheol. Maybe with a relationship to God based on how you live during your life. So there really wasn't any expectation beyond the life that we live, according to the Jews. And David knows this. David knows that in death, no one can worship God since that is why we were created. And I think perhaps David isn't trying to bargain with God, but perhaps David... And his words reveal something about the role of humans that we have in relation to God. 
On the one hand, David knows and acknowledges that God is free to act however he wants. But on the other hand, David is assured and he knows that we as humans have a role as worshippers. That our role as worshippers of God is threatened by death. He tells God that they need to remember and worship or praise Him. Who will remember you? Who will praise you? These are two important aspects of our congregational life, our lives as Christians, is to remember God, to remember Christ, and to worship Him. So it's possible that David isn't really trying to turn God's arm and to try and, you know, bargain with God. But perhaps God is mourning the loss of human purpose and meaning, which is found in remembrance of Christ and God and in praise of God. Regardless, though, we see your humans as worshippers of God. This is also the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is what David is reminding God of. Who will be able to glorify you? Who will be able to enjoy you if death swallows those who worship you? David's understanding of us as worshippers, us as humans created to worship God, is not something that we speak about enough. As I was preparing this week, I, I was reading our church's theological vision. And I'm going to be reading just two short paragraphs from our church's vision, which states that people are made to worship. Before every other purpose and pursuit, we are fundamentally worshipping beings. We're created to cherish, to enjoy, and to mimic what we love. This instinct takes no practice. It needs no motivation. We all worship something. It's in our blood. It's in our nature. We're fundamentally worshippers. That's why we exist. But we are not made to worship anything. We are made to worship God. Why? Because God made us. We are His creatures. Like a great craftsman, God is glorified by His works. And we are His work. God made man in His image, male and female, to care for His creation and to glorify Him in all things. And while this work is God's due from every human being, it is the special privilege and work of his people. And this is essentially why God is asking and trusting for God's deliverance. It's not only based on God's nature, as seen in his covenant faithfulness, but it's also based in our nature, as God created us. We are fundamentally created to be worshippers. We are made to remember God. We are made to praise God. Who will remember God in death? Who will praise him? In Sheol. We now move to the middle part of Psalm 6, which focuses on the torments and suffering that the psalmist is going through. We see in verses 6 and 7 the extended suffering caused by Yahweh's delay of action, which leads to our third point the torments of suffering. The torments of suffering. And I mean, this, this point is quite clear. We don't even have to go too much in depth here. We can just look at the words used by David to describe his experience. I'm weary with moaning. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away with grief. Moaning, tears, weeping, grief. These are all words used by David to explain 
the suffering that he's going through. He explains just how bad it is. He's actually weary or tired from suffering. The word here describes weariness which results from labor or tough exertion or a really hard day. The psalmist's anguish and groaning is seen as hard work. It results in physical exhaustion. His weeping and tears which lasts all the night is causing him to be tired and weary, yet he cannot find rest. It's restless, uncontrollable weeping with no end in sight. David tells us that his eyes are literally failing. They're wasting away. David is essentially on the edge of a complete breakdown. I mean, he's sitting in darkness and silence. And for many of us that have gone through times of depression or times of weeping, people can say that the nights are probably the most difficult. Those who have battled with depression or insomnia can tell you that the experience of grief and sorrow are often way worse during the evening. A commentator on this text noted that for most of those who suffer with depression and anguish, nights and the long watches of the night when silence and loneliness increase and the warmth of human compassion is absent, that is when pain and grief reach their darkest point. And this is what David is experiencing. He's at night, alone in his bed, experiencing deep anguish. And if we're honest, many of us have had times when we're too tired to get out of bed to get rest, or too worn out from getting kids to school, getting kids dressed, getting kids into the car. Many of us have been too weary to clean the house, or too depressed even to get up and go to church. Too burdened to read the Bible sometimes even too sluggish to pray to God. And you might be sitting here and say, oh, it really feels that nobody cares or even hears my cries of despair and pain. I would encourage you today that you're in really good company. <laughs> As David has felt despair. Paul felt despair. We see Jesus sweating blood, crying out to the Lord. We can find great assurance knowing that God hears us in our prayers. He hears our cries. How do I know this? That's a pretty big assertion to make. Well, the rest of Psalm 6 tells me so. Read with me in verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. This leads to our fourth point today. The Lord hears and accepts prayers of deliverance. The Lord hears and accepts prayers of deliverance. So in these last three verses, we find this, it's almost like a Mark and sandwich. So you know in the Gospel of Mark, as Matt has told, he puts something at the top and something at the bottom, like a sandwich, and then the meat in the middle is sort of what he highlights, the, the main idea. And here we find something similar where David tells us about his enemies in verses 8 and 10. And then in the middle, David tells us that the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David wants us to see what's in the middle here, which is the fact that God hears his pleas and accepts them. 
So up to this point, if you followed along from verse 1 to 7, we've seen that David has suffered emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. I mean, David has gone through quite a lot. We've seen the Lord's discipline of David in quite a severe way. That David isn't experiencing the Lord's discipline on merely a physical side, but it's also quite mental. He's being drained. He's feeling depressed. And now we see the Lord sending another bout of discipline, which is the enemies of David. And so, in the previous weeks, we've seen David sort of standing with God, saying, Lord, there are, all my enemies are against me, let you are by my side. Lord, all my enemies are against me, yet under your wings I can rest. Yet now it's almost as if God and David's enemies are against David. David's enemies are facing him, just like his sickness. David's enemies are sent by God. It's as if God has turned his face against David. Yet David tells them that they should run because the Lord has heard the sound of his weeping. The Lord has heard his plea for help. The Lord has accepted his prayer. Three times David affirms that the Lord will answer, that the Lord has heard. In the midst of confronting his enemies and sending them away, David offers a reason for this confidence that he has in the Lord. It's because the Lord has heard him. The Lord has heard him. John Calvin, commenting on this, tells us, that David repeats three times that his prayers were heard because by it he testifies and ascribes the deliverance of God and he confirms this confidence. He tells us, John Calvin, that if we would receive any fruit from our prayers, we must believe that God's ears have not been shut against them. And this is what we see with David. Even though David in verse 3 tells us that God is doing this to him and he is silent. Even though David is experiencing the enemies turned against him as coming from God, he nonetheless believes that the Lord is faithful to him, that the Lord has heard him, that the Lord has not shut out his ears from him. Just as certain as David is that his prayers have been accepted, in the same way he's assured that his enemies will be overthrown. As God's people... We will be reproved and disciplined by God. Sometimes it's sickness. Sometimes it's people who persecute us. And like David, many times we might feel that God is absent. He doesn't want to answer our prayers. Yet, as we saw at the start of the sermon, it's a good thing to be disciplined by God since it shows us that we are His children. We can find assurance in the fact that God is our Father and that we are experiencing His fatherly discipline. We also find a second piece of assurance here. Not only that we are God's children in discipline, but that He is steadfast in His love towards us. That because of His covenant love, we can boldly enter into His throne room of grace and make our pleas before Him. In this final section, we find that even in the midst of God's silence and displeasure, even though we're being disciplined, The Lord hears us and will answer our pleas. What a great assurance we have. That even if we sin, He doesn't leave us. He doesn't abandon us. He still hears us and answers our prayers. 
So as we come to a close this morning, the question that I think many of us have is, well, where does this leave us? As God's church, as, as those who are not necessarily experiencing what David is experiencing. We're not up at night crying, our bed full of tears or weeping, or we're not really facing any enemies in this life. Yet I would say that this is perhaps not the case for all of us. That I'm sure there are many sitting here and perhaps part of the congregation that are experiencing great suffering and are experiencing the Lord's discipline. And this should lead us to praise God. Be thankful that you have a Father in heaven who would punish you on this side of eternity as opposed to leaving you and punishing you for eternity reserved for those who are not his children. One commentator is theologically spot on when he writes, reflecting on divine punishment and silence, saying that divine wrath is not some sort of irritation. God is not, you know, pate peeved or annoyed. God's wrath is severely more serious than a temper tantrum. It is a deliberate resolve in response to a specific state of the human soul. Only the grace of God can deliver us from the wrath of God. And I think when we look at this and the whole of Psalm 6, we find that only the overwhelming grace of God can deliver us from God's wrath. It's like we saw last week in Psalm 5. We're able to escape the judgment of God and pray for God's righteousness because Jesus has already experienced the judgment of God. And so, where does this leave us? Well, if we experience God's discipline, if we experience God's anger today, we should know that we will never truly experience God's anger and wrath since that was what Jesus experienced on the cross. He satisfied divine justice. He satisfied divine wrath. What we experience isn't the satisfaction of God's wrath or judgment, but rather God's love for His children. As God disciplines us, we should view that as love, as any loving father would discipline their children. And this is how we should come to grips with the discipline and love of God. That we're really not facing God's wrath and anger. Christ has already done that. When we receive discipline or experience that, we're in actual fact experiencing the love of God, which tells us that we're His children. Rejoice when you experience the discipline of God. Praise the Lord as the worshiper He created you to be. And trust God that He hears you, even when you cannot find Him. For you have a great and faithful Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are gathered here this morning as we are able to hear preaching from your word. We thank you that you do not leave us as orphans, but that you have called us your children. Father, I pray that as many of us have in the past or even currently have experienced great suffering or perhaps your discipline. Lord, I pray that you may reveal to us why it is that we are going through tough times. If it is indeed your discipline. Lord, I pray that you may lead us into holiness and a greater sanctification as we are being transformed to the image of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.